Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Vernice Miller-Travis, and I'm the Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Equitable Development at SCIO. I co-host our regular monthly series on diversity, equity, and inclusion, environmental justice, and equitable development. As part of this series, we talk about how we can make our communities more sustainable, livable, and equitable. Our guest today is Dr. Adrian Hollis, Esquire. Hello, Dr. Hollis. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Our topic of discussion today is, in the current political climate, how can we give communities the tools they need to advance environmental justice and equity at the state and local levels? Is that good for you, Dr. Hollis? Yes, that is directly on point. All right. So our guest today, as I said, is Dr. Adrian Hollis Esquire. Adrian is a native of Mobile, Alabama. She's a graduate of Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi, where she received a Bachelor of Science degree in biology. She then attended Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, where she received a PhD in biomedical sciences. Then changing gears completely, Dr. Hollis came up north to attend Rutgers University School of Law, where she received her law degree. Adrian is currently serving as the director of Federal Policy for We Act for Environmental Justice, and she is based in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So that's quite an educational pedigree you have. What inspired you to get both a doctorate in biomedical sciences and a law degree? Well, thank you. And first of all, the um, when I went to school to get my law doctorate, it was with the intent to study the effect of chemicals on the body. At that time, my work was on ozone, and I was interested in how we can protect ourselves from contamination caused by inhaling toxic substances. After I received my law degree, I worked with um, at Florida a University as a professor, and I worked with communities, environmental justice communities. And I had numerous discussions with them around what they thought they needed to help them navigate through this whole environmental justice arena and at the federal level and the state and local level. And they said they needed a lawyer who would be able to explain things to them, you know, who understood where they were coming from. So I made the decision to leave my tenured position and attend law school. Who does that, Dr. Hollis? It was, you know, because that was what they needed. That's what people need now. They need to just to know that there are people on their side from every walk of life. So... That's really interesting. So you originally hailed from Mobile, Alabama, which you have told me many times is the home of Mardi Gras. And of course, if you want to, you know, if you want to talk on that and riff on that for a minute, be, feel free. But you're from the Gulf Coast of Alabama. What was it like growing up in Mobile and what are the unique environmental justice challenges facing communities in Mobile? OK, well, first of all, if you Google Mardi Gras, Mobile will come up first. It's the mother of Mardi Gras in this country. Now, when I was growing up in Mobile, we grew up in the shadow of the International Paper Company. 
So we would always smell that sulfur sort of, you know, that horrible smell that the rotten egg smell. A pulp and paper mill? Right, right. A paper company and r- right on the docks. And we were told that it was this, that's the way money smell. <laughs> Older people work at the paper mill and I was, you know, luckily enough, I didn't have to do that. And my family didn't have to do that. But there are a lot of challenges in Mobile and Alabama in general, right? In Mobile, you're right there at the state docks. And which I, if I'm not mistaken, was at one time, I'm not sure if it currently is a Superfund site because of contamination, I suppose, from the ports, the activities at the ports. And there are challenges around, um, you know, we have Africatown, which is located in a section of what suburb of Mobile, where there are a number. Say a little bit more about Africatown, Adrian. Well, Africatown is a community, one of the, I think it was one of the last communities that was, um, I guess, home to, well, I guess it was the, uh, where the, the last slaves disembarked from one of the slave ships, so back in the 1800s. So it hasn't received much information, but it was a, a group of West African slaves. And so it was the last known slave ship to come to the U.S. in 1980. And then, yeah, so they've been there a while. They eventually founded Africatown, and now their descendants are still dealing with issues like toxic storage of hazardous waste, like from the Canadian tar sands in, in the port. Because, you know, Mobile is bordered, I guess, to the south with uh, the Mobile River and, and such. And so there's a great video on that entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? Community or Chaos, that I can recommend to people, you know. But all up and down, I guess, the coast, there are a number of issues. Mobile is home to a number of um, polluters along the port. And Mobile suffered from the effects of the Deepwater um, Horizon spill. And also the hurricanes, because it is right there on the Gulf Coast. So there are climate challenges. There are sea level rise challenges. There's a legacy of toxic injustice. There's a legacy of being one of the last communities to receive enslaved Africans. And I believe they're still fighting for a cultural and historic designation in Africatown right now, right? Yes, they are. And let me also say that Mobile, being a southern state, in the deep south is also just fighting grave injustices, environmental injustices. You know, Alabama, as I said, in general, Uniontown, Anniston, I could go on. Birmingham. Right, that they were all con- where pollution was brought to the southern states, brought to Alabama from other places, other states that didn't want it. You know, that whole not in my backyard thing is perfect, a perfect set a saying for Alabama. So not in my backyard, put it in Alabama put it in Mobile, put it in in the southern states. So they're still fighting. They're fighting the recent election. I mean, we're still fighting just in general, racism in general. So we talk about environmental racism. That's even, you know, even more focused. So this battle has been going on since, well, obviously since the 1800s, if not before. Well, let's segue to sort of the work that you've been doing over the last few years, which is to strengthen the capacity of local communities facing environmental and public health threats to more effectively advance their own interests in the public policy arena. Why is this so important at this moment, you think, Adrian? Oh, okay. So I am, as the director of federal policy for WEAC for Environmental Justice, um, one of the um, Our goal is to empower communities or ensure that communities have a voice 
Now, in this administration, the current administration, the EPA administrator is focused on what he calls collateral federalism, which is moving environmental oversight to the state and local level. Now, that this is it's important for us to strengthen the capacity of local communities so that they can take their place at the table and be represented in any decisions that are made that are going to impact them. And so what my focus has been, my interest is in, in giving them as many tools as possible so that they can then have a cadre that they can pull from as needed to interact with others or to ensure that others interact with communities in the correct fashion. And how do you do that? What do you do on a daily basis to keep those communities informed, to help build and strengthen their capacity, to give them the information that they need? What do you do on a daily basis to make that happen? Well, one of the things that I do here is something as simple as sending out regular emails and to communities whenever there is an opportunity for, for example, funding opportunities so that they can then address some issue, environmental issue in their community. I try to get that out. I also am avid fan of social media because in that way, it's not only about educating the EJ communities. What I didn't say, let me just take a step back, is that the WEACS Washington office also facilitates the Environmental Justice Leadership Forum on Climate Change. And it's about 42 organizations across the country, EJ organizations, who are working both at the state state and federal level to address environmental issues. And as the name implies, it started with the, around the whole issue. It started with the whole issue of climate change with the Clean Power Plan a few years ago. So I do my best to make sure that communities have a voice or as someone said once, uh, as a conduit. So when communities need need to get the word out, like they need to be interviewed. Because I don't speak for communities. I just provide an opportunity, if possible, for them to speak or do a presentation or serve on a panel or whatever, you know, the opportunity is that has arisen. And what are some of the other pressing issues? You talked about collateral federalism. What are some of the other pressing issues you see bearing down on vulnerable communities right now? Well, the main issue is ensuring that as environmental laws are moved to the states, that communities aren't lost in that shuffle, right? That they are a valuable part of any process, that they are equal stakeholders at the table. And to that end, and with assistance from our consultant, SCIO, we were able to draft, uh, not draft, we were able to create, develop the Cleaner Air, Cleaner Communities Environmental Justice analysis guidance document. And what the whole purpose of that is to tell these environmental agencies, this is how you interact with communities early and often. And here's the process, a simple six-step process to make sure that they're engaging correctly, right? Because what you don't want to do is create a plan or a process and then later try to include the community because that will not work because that is not a partnership. So that's one of the main issues and one of the main tools we've created. Before you move on, Adrian, say a little bit more about what's in that guidance document. What are you guiding people to do? What are you telling them they can do? What will, if people follow this six-step process, what will it enable them to do? Well, the six-step process will enable communities to be partners with their state and local governments. It ensures that any activity, any legal plan or, or plan for legal regulations is just, right? Environmentally just. And so states are required to develop implementation plans for any, for example, the 
say they want to reduce some air pollutants. They come up with a plan as to how they're going to accomplish that. Well, in that plan development, states have to be represented. They are a part of that plan because they're going to be the first ones that are affected. And this guidance document helps to provide that opportunity. It also allows, it identifies community needs. It serves a purpose for evaluating community impacts and benefits, right? Because any particular legislation may have a negative impact or it may be beneficial to a community. And it also allows a community to, it actually, if a community feels like it's in, like they're involved at the beginning, I think that they're going to be more satisfied with the plan and the plan, that the implementation of the plan is actually going to be successful. And this allows that. And do you think communities will have the capacity to take that tool, that guidance, and, and really run with it at the state and local level? Definitely. I definitely think so. As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, a number of our community organizations are already using the document. And I'm actually, I'm sending, I'm just about to mail extra copies to one of our community partners. And we also hope that they will be giving them to their elected officials to say, when you create legislation, this is the process that you also have to use. So it's going to serve more than one purpose, or it has it will serve more than one purpose. So lately, or I should say, at least over the last year, I've seen you get very actively involved in advocacy campaigns and grassroots mobilization. You dragged me out in the 93 degree heat last year for the People's Climate March, and I literally almost fainted. I want to tell the audience that Adrian kept saying to me, are you sure you're okay? Are you sure you're okay? And I was having heat stroke, but I didn't know I was having heat But it was an extraordinary day for me, Adrian, in that when I went and sat down on the side to regain my composure, I saw all these people going by. So not just the EJ folks who were there with the Environmental Justice and Climate Forum, indigenous communities, communities from all over the folks, historically black colleges and universities, labor unions. I saw the janitors, the local janitors union from New York City out there marching in the People's Climate March, and then hundreds and hundreds of folks from environmental organizations and all kinds of people in between. It For me, who's worked on these issues for more than 30 years, it was like the culmination of a dream come true because I saw everybody out there at once recognizing that we are all intimately connected and that we all have got to do something together to move this issue politically and to fight for our own interests in our own communities. What puts you out there, Adrian? Because I don't think they do too much organizing in medical school. <laughs> no, what put me out there is the fact that climate change is an issue that affects everybody. And I think that one of the beautiful things that came, as you described, from the march was that some people really did begin to realize that, hey, you know what? This is affecting everybody. And another reason that I marched, Bernice, is because the first people that are going to be affected are those who the frontline communities and those other communities that I work with. And you've got to stand up for something or you'll fall for anything, as they say. So You were out there again, Adrian, for the March for Our Lives. So what's the connection between mobilization and the public policy work that you do? How did they intersect? Why is it important to be out there? And what was unique about those young people out there last week? So the first thing, there is a link between public policy advocacy and grassroots mobilization, right? Because the public policy, right? So I think that the message from the march is that we have power, you have power, 
And when you have power, you can affect policy. And I think that being a part of that march, of both marches, gave people that ownership and that realization that they're the ones, we're the ones who create policy and we're the ones who make a difference. And so that's the importance of, of being there, of showing up, right, is to show that I'm in this. I'm a part of this. And, you know, we still stand for this, for what's right. And people just feel ownership or they recognize that they already have ownership. And it was so important for the young people to be out there, both in, in both marches and in any march or rally. And it's for this, the March for Our Lives, it was very impactful. Over 800,000 people, a lot of kids. And I saw a lot of adults, teachers, parents. And then I don't have any children, but yet I feel the same fear that people, that these kids have, right? They shouldn't be afraid to go to school. We shouldn't be afraid to walk around. We shouldn't be afraid to be in our grandparents' backyard, right? And so all of these are effects for public. These are ways we can have an impact on public policy. We advocate for what's right. And by showing up, what you're doing is showing those who have been making these bad decisions that, hey, we're here, we're watching you, and we're not going to let this happen. Because one of the things that the march says is march as if your life depends on it. March as if your life depends on it. And it does. If it's not climate change, if it's not clean air, clean water, it's gun violence, right? Because that's also an environmental issue where we live, where we work, where we play. So recently, Adrian, you and I had the pleasure to be at um, National Geographic for their first ever symposium and discussion on environmental justice. And then the very next week, National Geographic came out with its first ever issue on race. And one of the things they did was apologize for the 130 plus year history of National Geographic, which many would consider to be profoundly racist in how they depicted the images of people of color the world over and gave very little attention to those issues here in the United States. What was that experience like for you? For me, it was kind of mind blowing. And we also went to support our colleague, um, Mustafa Ali, who was one of the discussants. What was that experience like for you? Right. I was going to say mind blowing but it it left me speechless. The speakers were fantastic, both Mustafa and uh, we just left another podcast with um, Dr. Bullard, Dr. Bob Bullard and Mustafa. And it was so powerful to come to National Geographic, to the office. And it was my first time there. And we looked around the audience. It was mostly white people. And it was so funny because I said to one of my friends who was with me, all the black people in here probably work on environmental justice because it was, you know, because I think everybody knew each other and to have them verbalize the fact that they had been engaged in environmental racism in for these last 100 and um, however many years is powerful. It's moving. Now the question becomes, and what are you going to do from here? Just because you put it in a magazine, that's very nice. And you had um, a seminar series. That was very nice. But what are you going to do now? And I guess this is where we wait and see. We watch to see if some of the practices are still going. The things that sold that they considered this will sell the magazine, if those practices are still going to continue. I think for the rest of us, I know for those people who were there, it was really impactful. Just hearing some people, for me, it was an eye opener because some of the terminology that I hear every day, there are people in the audience who had never heard it. 
And I was like, wow, why are they asking these questions? It was crazy. You know, it was so just eye opening for me. One of the things that made me think, I kept thinking over and over and over again about Zora Neale Hurston. And so Zora Neale Hurston was an anthropologist that most people don't know that they think of her as a great writer, a writer of the Harlem Renaissance, but she was an anthropologist and she was the first black woman to graduate from the college that I went to from Barnett College in New York. So she was a student of Franz Boa, who is thought of as the father of American anthropology. And she was a classmate of Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist. And the dominant thinking at the time in the field of anthropology was that not only were Black people inferior, but their brains were actually smaller than that of white folks. And so therefore, they had less intellectual capacity. And that was a literal scientific theory. And so she went out and set up her table and did her field work on 125th Street and 7th Avenue in Harlem, the main commercial drag in Harlem, where I'm from. And she would just Randomly, you know, black folks would walk by and she had that tool. I always forget what the tool is called, but where you measure the size of a cranium. And she had that tool, several of them, and she had this little desk and she would randomly stop black folks and she would ask them if they would let her measure their heads. And most people said yes. And so she did. And this was her field work. And she did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of folks. She measured their head. She brought all that information back. She wrote it up and she said, well, We're going to have to toss this theory out because there is no difference between the size of the heads, therefore the brains of black people versus white people. So what you got? You know, what's your next theory? And going to to Barnard went. So when she went there, she was the first black woman. There was only one other black woman in the school at the time. She graduated in the class of 1934. When I entered in 1977, there were 11 black women in my class. So in a period of 40 some odd years, there were still only 11 black women in our class. But we were still encountering some of that really specious argument about the capacity of black folk and other people of color. And so I just kept thinking about Zora Neale Hurston while we were sitting at National Geographic that I wonder what she would say and how this conversation has evolved, but especially on that edition of National Geographic, that's their April edition, all about race and really talking about what their role has been in fomenting these concepts, these specious concepts of people the world over and their capacities, their culture, their culture and what they give to the world versus what others have given to the world. It was like a giant ticking sound in my head. I wonder what Zora Neale Hurston would think about all of this. I totally agree. I often wonder about people, our great leaders, our past leaders, what they think. You know, what would Martin Luther King say? We're all sitting in this in this theater and we're reading this journal that talks about the bad things or whatever you want to call it, the bad things that Nat Geo used to do. What would he say about that? What would anybody say about that? Anybody who has come before us? So speaking of Dr. King, and I'll make this our last question and you can go on as long as you want and answer to it. We are coming up on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King. We, you and I are working in the space about environmental racism and environmental justice. What do you think Dr. King would say about where we are as a country, where we are as a world in terms of our relationships to to peoples around the world, but where we are at the intersection of these issues around race and environment and public health? What do you think Dr. King would think about that? Would he think we've made a lot of progress in the research that we've done, the advocacy that we've done, the public policy that we've advanced, or that people are still catching hell? What do you think he would say, Adrian? I think he would be both proud and disappointed. I think he'd be proud at the number of people who've turned up and turned out 
to fight these issues, to speak about them, to speak out about them. But he'd recognize and realize that this fight is still going on. You know, in, in some ways, we're still fighting the same fight, depending on what part of the country you're in. I think he'd be disappointed in this administration because they're trying to take us back to where we were back then, even before him. And so I think that he'd be surprised, you know, that a lot of things haven't changed or a lot of people haven't changed. You know, we still have some of the same people who would like to repress those who they consider to be less than. And for people to even still have that thought is something that I'm sure he'd be very, very disappointed in because I'm disappointed, you know, and it's 2018. So I think that he'd be proud of the number, like the marches. I think that would be like, he would be very, you know, it's a big, compared to Selma, it's a bigger Selma, right? It's more people showing up and different people of color, just different people from all walks of life that you've already mentioned. So I do think he'd be proud of us, the American people. You think he'd be proud of us? Well, Dr. Of us. Of us, of all of us, right, who are trying to keep that dream alive and trying to keep moving towards that beloved community that he he fought and died for. Thank you, Adrian, for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate you carving out this time to speak with us. And I personally don't know a whole lot of academics who would leave the shelter and comfort of a tenured position at a university to step onto the front lines of the fight. So for me personally, Dr. House, thank you so much. Thank you, Vernice. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.